0: Coming to you from deep inside the vaults of the Holmes Archive of Electronic Music, I am Tom Holmes, your curator and guide to vintage electronic music and audio experimentation. episode, Keith Emerson, an appreciation of his Moog musicianship. Hey, for this episode, we are going to take a close listen to the Moog performances of Keith Emerson. The recordings that follow feature Emerson during the heyday of Emerson, Lake, and Palmer in the 1970s. Emerson was the versatile keyboard player of the group that also included Carl Palmer on drums and Greg Lake, who wrote the lyrics, sang songs, and played bass guitar and guitar. Emerson, of course, was the brilliant keyboardist who was most at home on the Hammond organ, piano, and Moog modular synthesizer. We'll listen to some studio recordings as well as some live recordings where Emerson showed a brilliant resiliency in adapting the Moog to situations that could only come up in live performance. For this special look at Keith Emerson, we have a special guest, Brian Kew. Brian recommended most of the tracks that we will hear, and he will walk us through all but the first track to highlight some of Emerson's outstanding musicianship. Brian is a friend and fellow electronic music historian and is also known as an electronic musician and producer. Of most relevance to this podcast, he was a key engineer for Moog Music who worked on reconstructing the Keith Emerson Moog Modular back in 2014. I've included links to Ryan's various endeavors in the playlist for the show, and make sure you check out his incredible book that he wrote with Kevin Ryan called Recording the Beatles. I've also included a link to the Electronic Music Education and Preservation Project in Plymouth Meeting, Pennsylvania, just outside of Philadelphia, which is where Emerson's Moog is on display. Keith Emerson was an enormously talented pianist whose vision for music generously encompassed the genres of progressive rock, classical, and jazz. Beginning with the piano, he added the Hammond organ and then the Moog to his repertoire of keyboards. An imaginative player, he effortlessly combined elements of all genres of music and was able to play different styles on each hand at the same time. In many ways, one of the key drivers behind his playing was that of contrast. And his flair for integrating different genres of music made this so easy for him. The genre of progressive rock suited him perfectly. He combined flashy playing with a flair for the melodramatic in stage performance. The Moog modular synthesizer was an important component of this new sound. In a video produced by Moog Music Inc. in 2014, Emerson said... I still use this as part of my keyboard rig because nothing else makes um, a sound like it, really. It, uh, when you crank it up in a stadium, it can, um, it can hurt. <laughs> About Emerson the Synthesist, Brian Q notes that Keith's aptitude with the Moog provided a distinctive perspective on the instrument.
1: Most Moog players approach the instrument as simply another keyboard. Some people have called it a glorified organ. It's fair to say for some players, but not for the Moog modular that has a huge range if you know how to patch it and extract imaginative sounds. There are the players like Chick Corea, Herbie Hancock, Jan Hamer, Rick Wakeman. They all find the mini Moog easy to work with, but it tends to be note-oriented playing, using very simple patches and routings, not much beyond what an organ could do.
0: While Emerson was familiar with programming a synthesizer, he was more of a musician than a synthesizer engineer.
1: Keith did play melody-based synthesizer sounds, as did most people. He was not a synthesizer expert on his own. He didn't really know all of the what and why of how the synthesizer operated, as did Carlos and Tomita. Very few synthesizer owners actually understood their systems well, but they got on with it and they made music. With the faux Moog Modular at its disposal, Keith often went beyond the normal keyboard sounds with wild modulations. That's really what makes Emerson unique to his instrument, are those patches.
0: So moving on to some recordings of Keith Emerson, the first track I'm including is Lucky Man from the Maiden album from Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. It was released as a single from the forthcoming album in late 1970 and reached number 48 on the Billboard Hot 100. Of particular note is the Moog solo near the end of the track in which Emerson used the Moog's ribbon controller. This was overdubbed in one take. Emerson later admitted that he was somewhat embarrassed by having that solo laid down in vinyl for all time, having not really practiced or perfected it for the recording. But the solo stands as a hallmark synthesizer sound that you really could not achieve on another instrument and although Lucky Man did not contain the first example of a ribbon controller solo, Dick Hyman has that distinction with a song he released called The Minotaur about a year earlier than Lucky Man. Emerson's solo boldly announced the arrival of a new heavyweight synthesizer master. Let's listen to Lucky Man.
2: And ladies by the score, all dressed in satin and waiting. His blood ran.
0: Next up is a selection from Brain Salad Surgery, an ELP album from 1973. The track is Tocada, and involves some really surprising manipulations of the Moog. Here's Brian.
1: In Toccata, the sound modulates in two different directions at once at times, and that's without a doubt pretty exceptional compared to what most people were doing with their synths. This is a tricky piece, as some of the synthesizer parts you'll hear are the Moog Lyra instrument, a prototype which plays the horn melodies. And other parts are synthesized by triggered drum synthesizers, Carl Palmer's playing. There's also some synth tracking happening on Greg Lake's guitar. But the main noisy lead line here that's interesting is the patch, which glides in two directions. Most of this introduction is the Lyra, but at 30 seconds in, the modular plays, and the last note slides quickly in two directions, up and down. It's hard to hear all the details, but it's a basic note and pitch that slides both up and down simultaneously. It's using an LFO, which is a square wave, so it jumps up and down in a trill. For a few seconds, Emerson demonstrates this quite well. So each pitch is trilling quickly up and down, sliding outward from the center pitch in a mirrored movement. I love the idea, it's a great idea. Totally an unknown territory musically for most people. At 1.39, you can hear the square wave trill modulation more clearly. And anyway, here we have more of the same. That sound is interesting as it utilizes a module that's rarely used, a trigger delay. So when you play a key, something waits to happen. And this waits a little while to activate that rise and fall motion only after he holds a key down for a bit. So he can play normal notes and parts. Then on the end of a phrase, it activates the wild rising falling when he holds the key down. There's also some kind of ring modulator going on to make it even more grinding. I think these sounds are some of the reasons his lead keyboard style held its own. He didn't always just use one of those simple sounds as others did. He gave it complexity that rivals almost any acoustic or amplified instrument.
0: Let's listen now to Toccata by Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. Now we turn to some of Emerson's live recordings where we observe what happens in real time. Aqua Tarkas is a good case in point. This track is from the 1974 live recording called Welcome Back My Friends to the Show That Never Ends, Ladies and Gentlemen. We hear more wild modulations plus Emerson's great expansive sonics on the Moog. This piece was part of the live Tarkas piece for concert. Brian Kiyu explains.
1: Keith solos over a drone that's happening beneath, coming from the Moog modular, and then he's using the oscillator that's not being used for the drone to solo on top. Keith uses weaving drones and modulation to create kind of fireworks of sound, not tonal melodic playing as much as wild sonic expressionism. The sequence simultaneously features modular tones that are slowly rising in pitch, contrasted to sharp solo tones that cascade lower. Here, then, is Aquatarcus live.
0: As anyone who knows the Moog Modular, when problems happen with the instrument, one must adapt. Emerson was great at this. An example can be heard in the live recording of Mass from Welcome Back My Friends to the Show That Never Ends. Brian explains.
1: In this piece, Keith finds a glitch in the Moog ribbon controller and he turns it into a musical tool. Keith solos using the ribbon controller. It's an incredible freak out section. He's finding those between pitches that keyboards can't usually make, and he's using a glitch in the material of the ribbon itself to create that machine gun stuttering. So this is actually a problem in his equipment, but he's using it to make a great effect.
0: Let's listen to this live recording of Mass, which is part of the larger work Tarkus. The glitch that Brian talks about begins at around nine minutes into the piece.
3: And a prayer, save every single hair on his head. He's dead. The minister of hate. But just your right to live to despair. Who cared? The weaver in the web that he made. A pilgrim wanted in, committing every sin that he could. So good the caught him in the grief. We set him to believe he could save. From the grave. The weaver in the way come from-
0: For contrast, let's compare that performance with another live version of Mass. Brian explains.
1: Here's another version of the ribbon glitch and solo. This is the beginning of another great sequence of experimental sound, bass, ribbon controller, and modulated white noise. He's shifting between the thick, bassy sound and the percolating drops of sound and noise. Keith always did these kind of improvisations all the time, especially if something went wrong, he would actually shift gears and try to do something new and creative instead of having it be a problem.
0: We'll extract just a couple of sequences from the piece, another version of the ribbon glitch, and another section of experimental sounds. The next piece we want to talk about is From the Beginning that was found on the Trilogy album in 1972. For the Trilogy album, he provided a beautifully lyrical Minimoog solo for the otherwise acoustic track. So let's listen to the released version of this song, plus an alternate take of the solo. Note that the alternate take is entirely different, note for note. Again, this is done using the Minimoog.
2: I just can't recall It doesn't matter at all
0: Keith Emerson's musical legacy is one of seamlessly crossing borders between genres. As Brian says, Emerson's music was really experimental. While most musicians usually lie in one camp or another, tonal and tuneful or non-tonal experimental, Keith was pretty great at both and not afraid to go there.
1: I've seen Keith on stage before when he reaches over to the Moog to do something he expected to do and it's doing the wrong thing and he improvises, instantly shifts and starts to utilize that sound or that effect in a new way to try to create and improvise
0: to do something new. Many thanks to Brian Kew for contributing his insight and know-how to this edition of the podcast. Please see the podcast website for a complete playlist and associated links for this episode. If you would like to know more about the history of electronic music, please read my book, Electronic and Experimental Music, 6th edition, published by Routledge. All of the music heard on this podcast, unless otherwise indicated, is brought to you from the Holmes Archive of Electronic Music, a curated collection of vintage recordings. All crackles, surface noise, and other imperfections heard in this podcast are purely intentional. All intro, outro, and other incidental music is by Tom Holmes. For a complete playlist, go to theholmesarchive.podbean.com. For notes about this episode, please see my blog, Noise and Notations, at tomholmes.com. So long from deep inside the Holmes Archive of Electronic Music.